Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. Who is Jesus? I imagine that is the reason why most, if not many of us are here today, is because of Jesus. But who is he? I truly believe that this is one of the most significant questions that you and I can ask ourselves here today. Who is Jesus? The reason that I believe that this question is so significant for us to wrestle with is because how you view Jesus will determine how you respond to him. And when we, pursue, when we pursue Jesus and seek to answer these questions, it has the power and potential to change the trajectory of our lives. It's a natural response for when we allow Jesus to impact our lives. And so the things that you did or didn't value before, they may change People who you either didn't like or just saw differently, or maybe you see people as people for the first time, that all begins to change when Jesus impacts our life. And so the question is, who is Jesus? Was he just a good teacher, like Gandhi or Miss Frizzle from the Magic School Bus? Was he some leader just like Luke Skywalker, a rebel leader of some sort? Or was he just some guy who lived a long time ago and really has no impact, should have no impact on our lives today? This is the question that I want you to join me in wrestling with this morning. And we're not the only ones who have wrestled with this question. Since Jesus started his ministry nearly 2,000 years ago, people have been asking this question, who is Jesus? And for good reason, as we have been journeying through the gospel of Luke these past few months, we have seen Jesus do many miraculous things. And because of that, his news, his word about him began to spread throughout the land. Three weeks ago, we read about how Jesus' fame really began to take off when he performed probably his most incredible miracle to date, when he raised a young boy from the dead. That would turn some heads if you saw that, right? And so we see how the people, the crowd at that location who saw it, how they responded when we read back in Luke 7, 16. It says, for fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countryside. And then two weeks ago, we heard from Rachel who spoke about John the Baptist. And even though he expressed doubt, he would continue to proclaim and from the beginning proclaim that he was the Messiah. The one who would come into this broken world and restore it. The one who would rescue not just the nation of Israel, but all people. And as we learned three weeks or last week with Topher, the religious leaders did not like that. 
did not like people spreading these rumors about him. They were upset that crowds would swarm around him as he traveled, and the religious leaders would rebuke him and ridicule him. They'd call him a glutton and a drunkard just because of the people he hung out with, because they were less than them. They were tax collectors and sinners. And so they would try and disown or disprove who Jesus was, but it really... Jesus, was, Jesus just wasn't afraid to hang out with the people that the prophets, not the prophets, excuse me, the Pharisees just saw as less than. He would go into those places that no one else would go. And honestly, I feel like they were a bit envious of the sinners that they would call them because they were like, I can just kind of see him pouting in the side. You're going to hear about Simon today. And he's like, man, Jesus is always, he's never hanging out with us. I want to know, all these rumors are being spread about him. Well, talk to us. We want to get to know you. We're the religious elites. And He doesn't do that. Jesus goes where the need really is, and he goes to people who need to experience forgiveness of sins. And so out of that envy, I I feel like uh, an invitation to come to a Pharisee's house comes out of that. And so even though he's devoted to talking to all the people in the streets, he's also for all people. And so he takes an invite to this Pharisee's home, a religious leader in that time. And that's where we'll begin our passage today. You can join me in reading Luke 7. We're starting in verse 36. should be on the screen. Begins saying, One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner When she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So let's just stop here for a moment because this scene is a bit weird, right? Like, that's just like, you don't see, people don't just come into your house and like display this kind of emotion for someone you're trying to get to know. Jesus is at the Pharisee's house, reclining at the table, just chilling. He's doing fine. And this woman comes in and something surprising happens in the scene. Using the word that's translated, behold, Luke tells us or draws our attention to the woman who enters the space where they're reclining. And while it wasn't uncommon for people to come into someone's property and listen and watch the meeting of the mind, something like this take place, it was like a form of entertainment, like, oh, I got to hear what's going on. It wasn't uncommon for that to take place, but this woman didn't do that. She wasn't just watching from a window or another room. She walks right into Jesus's space and things begin to happen. Now, we don't know a lot about the woman other than the fact that she's a woman and that she's of the city, meaning that she had a bad reputation. And that brings us to the third thing that we know so far, which is that she was a sinner. Sometimes, or some translations will say that she lived a sinful or immoral lifestyle. And it's likely that lifestyle that was the very thing that she was known for in the city. I wonder if any of us can relate to this woman's experience to some degree. Are there things about you or in your past, maybe choices you've made or are currently making, things that bring with it feelings of guilt and shame? 
Maybe the whole city of Richmond or Carytown doesn't know your name because of those choices, but you have this fear that people can see right through you, like it's written on your face. And you try and cover it up as best as you can with what you look like or dress like or your personality, but deep down you just feel like people can see right through me. I know it. Well, you're in good company here this morning. And for this woman, everyone did know. Everyone knew what she did. But Luke doesn't record what her sins are, right? Just that she was a sinner. And given the reaction that she has at Jesus' feet, we can probably assume some of the worst. But if Luke didn't mention what her sinful lifestyle included, then that tells us that her sinful lifestyle wasn't the main point in this situation. Something else is more important. And so this woman comes before and stands behind Jesus as his feet, as he's laying down, reclining at the table, and she begins to break down in tears. And at some point, she must have fallen to her knees, and as tears are falling down, they're going all over Jesus' feet. And she's like, I gotta, I gotta clean this up. And the only thing she can think to use in that moment is her own hair. And as she does that, and I'm guessing her, his feet was not that clean still, he's been walking in the sand and the dirt all day, she begins kissing his feet all over. And then lastly, she anoints his feet, taking expensive ointment or perfume, something she would have probably used for work, something that was valuable to her, and just pours it onto his feet. What in the world would have caused this kind of response from the woman? It was pretty normal for people to come to Jesus throughout the whole land wanting some kind of healing of some sort. You know, throughout the different gospel accounts, we see witness accounts of people coming from all over. They would come just to be touched by him. They would reach for his robe. They would even stretch out just for the shadow to cross along their hand because they believed that they would be healed of some kind of physical illness or disability. So that wasn't uncommon. But from what we can tell, Luke doesn't mention anything physically wrong with her. Nothing that, they, that we would be able to see from the outside. All we know is that she was a sinner and that the community that she lived in knew it too, including the Pharisee who invited Jesus to dine with him. So watch how the Pharisee responds to this situation. Luke seven thirty nine. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This internal response to what is taking place is loaded with judgment, and it's also revealing to us the Pharisee's heart. Not only has he already written off the woman, but it also shines a light on his intentions for inviting Jesus over in the first place. Remember, a lot of things were being said about Jesus, a lot of big things, a lot of big claims, and the Pharisees had real issues with that. And so you would think like, hey, let me just, let me figure out if this is true or not. That's not the motivation that we can tell behind the invitation. Now, we don't want to assume that this meal was meant to be a trap, but it's probably safe to say that he was more worried, the Pharisee was more worried about looking for reasons to disprove Jesus rather than find reasons to believe in him. 
His motivation was all wrong. And this moment is all he needed in his own mind to prove that Jesus wasn't a prophet and that he definitely wasn't the Messiah. Have you ever felt like that towards Jesus? Just a little bit, just a little bit. Many people's faith journey begin in this stage of disbelief and like, I don't believe it, I don't buy it. I'll find reasons to say, no, that can't be. Maybe you walked in here today looking for a reason to disprove that Jesus is who he said he was or that he could possibly have something to offer you, to teach you. And if that's the case, it's okay because Jesus is used to this and he can take it. But maybe, just maybe, I wanna encourage you, if you would open yourself up to him, he might reveal something in his word that you never even realized you needed. The Pharisee believed he knew better than Jesus. And after he was, or because of that, he always thought that if he was a real prophet, put that in air quotes, if he was a real prophet, he would have known the type of woman that she really was, the things that she was guilty of. And if Jesus were a real prophet, then there's no way that he would allow a woman like that to touch him. Because of her sin, she would have been considered unclean. And anything that she touched, therefore, would be considered unclean. Yet Jesus was allowing her to do these things at his feet. The Pharisee assumed that God would have shared the same judgment he had over this woman. And if Jesus were a real prophet of God, then he would have shared in that judgment as well and rebuked her without question. But Jesus doesn't. And knowing the Pharisee's thoughts as only a prophet could, he decides to teach him a lesson. And since the Pharisee has already judged this woman and Jesus, he gives him another opportunity to judge. And that's where we pick up in 740. And Jesus, answering him, or said to him, Simon, not Simon Peter, it's a common name back then, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher, Notice already his heart and his mouth are saying two very different things. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, about a year and a half's wages, and the other 50, which would have been about a month and a half. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus is a master storyteller, but he doesn't just tell stories, right? He uses stories to teach important truths to the people around him. And Jesus uses this simple story to reveal to the Pharisee and everyone who is there watching and listening what is really taking place at that meal that day. While the story speaks about a financial debt that is in place, Jesus is speaking in parable about a very real but different debt that both the woman and the Pharisee share together, and that is the debt of sin. In this story, Jesus displays three characters. Each character represents one of them at the meal. The money lender represents Jesus. The one who owes the smallest debt is the Pharisee, and the last who owes the largest amount is the woman who had much sin. 
And the lesson that Jesus is trying to show Simon is that the, he only sees the woman's debt and fails to see his own because in his mind, he is far superior to her. He, too, has a debt of sin, though. His sins may be more socially acceptable, like pride, hard-heartedness, a judgmental spirit, things that you and I, I'm sure, have no relation with or correlation with at all, right? Okay, I'm in good company too. But in the end, both have sinned. Both have a debt of sin against them. And both cannot pay it. Like the money lender in the story, Jesus has come to extend mercy and grace to all people and forgive them of their debts. And Jesus is now about to make it unmistakably clear to them which character they are in this story and what is unfolding at Simon's house. Luke 7, 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love this scene. Because even though he's speaking directly to Simon, he is looking right into the eyes of this woman. And he's not putting the focus on himself. He's not putting the focus on Simon or even the woman's sins. He's putting the focus on her. The woman that Simon has already judged, who he has written off and othered. A person who is not worthy of his time. Who's not worthy of love. And Jesus is forcing Simon to see her, maybe for the very first time. The awful things that she has done are not the things that make her who she is anymore. That she is still worthy to be seen, still worthy of help and care, of love and forgiveness. So Jesus continues to stare into her eyes as he speaks directly to Simon And he says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We see an extreme contrast here between how the woman responded to Jesus and how the Pharisee did. For the first time, we hear from that moment Jesus walked into the Pharisee's house, he showed him absolutely no love. Not even what was custom courtesy for someone, a guest, to walk into that home that day. Imagine you have customs when people come over, you maybe take their coat, you give them a hug. Yeah, Jesus got nothing. Absolutely no love from him because he failed to see who Jesus was or that he even had anything to offer him. 
But for the woman, we're finally made aware of why she responded to Jesus the way that she did in what might seem like a very dramatic way. We read in verse 47, Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she showed, or she, for she loved much. And if we're not careful, we can easily read this verse as if it's saying, because she has shown great love, that she is now forgiven. As if by our actions, we can earn forgiveness. But that could not be further from the truth. The Apostle Paul would even later say in his letter to the Ephesians, saying, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by your own doing. It is a gift from God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the correct way to interpret what Jesus is teaching in this moment is that her response, how she was cleaning and kissing and anointing his feet, they're not the cause for forgiveness, but the evidence of it, of what has already taken place in her life. Her response is one of sincere love and gratitude for what she, by faith, already knew Jesus had done in her life. And we may not know when she figured this out or when the forgiveness took place. Maybe it was at one of the other gatherings where Jesus was hanging out with a bunch of sinners as the Pharisees said it. Maybe it was there. Or maybe it was earlier in that day when they're on the road and they crossed paths. We don't know. But what is clear is that forgiveness came first. Forgiveness came first. Which then led her to a response of unashamed love for Jesus. Where she gave him everything she had in that moment. And even though the same forgiveness was extended and would have been extended to Simon the Pharisee, he wouldn't receive it because he didn't see any reason to be forgiven. And so the one who had been forgiven little, loved little. Meaning because Simon did not show love to Jesus, we can conclude that he has not yet received forgiveness, not yet accepted the forgiveness that comes from Jesus what he has to offer him. And at the end, he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And this is not really for her. She was already aware of that fact. That's why she was responding in the way that she did. The reason he says is the same reason he did it back when he healed the paralyzed man earlier in Luke. He wanted the crowd around them to hear it out loud and to begin to understand that Jesus has the power to forgive sins a power that was only for God himself to do. And that's what leads the people around them at the table to begin to ask this very significant question that we're asking today. Who is Jesus? Specifically, who is this who forgives sins? Something only God could do. Is he for real? Does that mean he's, he's worth following? Is he worth my time, my riches, my energy? Is he worth my life? And those answers, the answers to those questions begin with, who is Jesus? The Bible tells us that, the, that he, Jesus, is the son of God, meaning literally God in the flesh came to this earth and walked among us. It also tells us that he came to this world to solve a problem that we could not, our sin. 
one that we all have. The very thing that separates you and I from God. And Romans tells us that the penalty of sin is death, and Jesus displayed the most powerful act of love that someone can share for another. He took our place. He sacrificed himself on that cross. He willingly went to the cross to pay the death that we deserved. That's the penalty of sin. And because of that, he is the only one who can relieve us from the debt of sin. And it's available to each and every single one of us. Whether you've got great sin or small sin, many or few, Jesus comes to each of us all the same. We're all on equal playing field with this one. I like how David Garland puts it in his commentary in Luke. He says, Luke, or Jesus eats with sinners, but he also eats with Pharisees because God is not for one brand of sinner over against another, but for all sinners, making the point that the Pharisee too is a sinner. But he's not going to force anyone's hand in this. It's our choice to respond to him. That's our choice to receive all that Jesus has to offer, to experience the fullness of Christ, including the forgiveness we need for our sins. And to help us experience this, I want to give us three not-so-easy steps. The reason I say it's not so easy is because whether you've given your life to Christ already, you've been following him for decades, or whether you've never given your life to Christ and you're just maybe seeking to know more about him, it's all, we are, we're all in the same boat when it comes to us. We're required to come before him humbly, to let go of our pride, a very difficult thing to do, and to do that daily, to see the problem that is at root in our own hearts, to see it and know our need for him, to ask him for help. So here are the not-so-easy steps. Recognize, receive, and respond. Let's just take a look at the first one, recognize. Similar to any recovery program, the first step to solving a problem is admitting that you have one. And in the same way to receive forgiveness, you must first recognize your need for it. To recognize that you have sin in your life. Big or small, many or few, each of us, myself included, have done wrong and have broken away from God's plan for our lives. Maybe for you, the the woman's story really resonates with your own. There are things in your life, decisions that you have made or felt pressured to make, and now shame and guilt follow you wherever you go. You might not be known in the city at large, but you may be known in different circles, like at home or in your family, at work or at school where the mistakes you've made in the past continue to reveal themselves, to show up. And maybe because of that, you struggle to see your own worth. Maybe you've continued down that dark path because you've believed the narrative that people have placed over you. Maybe you feel like you're too far gone and that Jesus doesn't want anything to do with you. 
but he does. He absolutely does. Jesus sees you. Every choice you've ever made, good or bad, and he still loves you enough to die on a cross because of your sins. He took it upon himself so that one day you'd be able to be known as you really are, who you really are, a child of God made in his likeness and not by your mistakes. Jesus gave himself up for you because he loves you, because you're worth it. And he knew that you could not pay for that sin on your own. Or maybe your story is closer to that of the Pharisee. You don't have to be a religious person to address or relate with the Pharisee here. Maybe like him, you tend to look down upon others because of what they believe or the choices that they've made, the mistakes they've made. And this gives you some kind of false narrative that I'm better than them because of the choices I've made or because of what I believe. I'm just, I'm better than them, so therefore I'm good. And therefore, you don't need anyone to rescue you. Compared to others, you've done nothing bad enough to merit the need for forgiveness. If I can be honest with you this morning, it's a lot easier for me to relate with the Pharisee than it is for the woman. And I hate that. I wish it wasn't so. For my story, growing up, I, I didn't make a lot of terrible decisions. I made plenty of poor ones. I'm sure my parents could speak to that. They're watching right now. But I, I wasn't a bad kid, and I, I don't think I'm a bad person to this day. But because of that, when I came to faith, when I put my life in the hands of Jesus as a late teenager, I, I didn't think I had that much to be forgiven of. And that's an easy trap to fall into. And maybe you're kind of like me in that and like the Pharisee. And I think if that's the case, you might even be in the majority where we struggle with that tension, where we tend to find it easier to look down upon others because of decisions or beliefs that they have. But hear this. This is something I have to recognize daily as well. That if we continue down that path of the Pharisee, we will not only struggle to share the good news of Jesus with others, but we'll begin to forget how bad we need Jesus as well. That we need Jesus just as much as anyone else. No matter which story these two you relate with, we all fall short. And our sins rack up a heavy debt that we just cannot pay. That's the worst part of it all. We can't do anything to fix that. We can't pay the penalty. Just like the woman, just like the Pharisee. And no amount of good works, no amount of right behaviors are gonna earn your way or earn your salvation. And I know that feels kind of dark, but there is hope. Receive. The good news of the gospel is that there is someone who can take care of that debt, the one that we cannot. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is the only one who can rescue us from the debt of sin. So from one sinner to another, humble yourself. Repent from sinfulness and turn to Jesus. Be baptized into him. By faith, trust him with your life. When we take those steps, we are able to finally receive the grace and forgiveness for our sins, 
and to earn, or not earn, excuse me, to just receive the, the uh, salvation that we can't earn for ourselves. Receive the hope of Jesus that nothing you can do, there's nothing that can take you down that Jesus cannot lift you back up from, not even death itself, for Jesus has already conquered the grave. And finally, respond. How you respond to Jesus is the evidence for what has been done in your life, the impact he has or has not made yet. But how do you respond to someone who has sacrificed everything for you like Jesus has? Well, let's look at the life of the woman. By expressing your love for him, unashamed for what others might think, and that's hard to do in this culture, by giving of your riches because he is more important than anything you possess. By giving of your time, maybe through prayer or reading his words, silence and meditation, but just spending time with him and coming alongside him, serving in his mission. So how are you responding to Jesus in your life? How you view Jesus will determine how you respond to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, sinners, broken. And God, I just pray that we can all, not just while we feel the weight of that maybe, God, that we would also feel relief that we don't have to carry that burden anymore. Jesus came to this earth. God, you came to this earth in the flesh, showed the ultimate sacrifice of love for us by dying on a cross, paying the penalty that is death. And while death may come for us all, it's not the end for us. That is the hope that we have in your son, Jesus, that this isn't the end. The circumstances we face today and tomorrow are not the end. They're not the end all be all, and they're not the worst. God, we have hope that we can only find in you. God, I thank you for our love. And I pray today as we celebrate in a little while people stepping into that faith by being baptized. I pray for those in this room who are still struggling with giving you their full life. Maybe they're holding back pieces of it. Maybe they've been following Jesus, but they, they can't let go of certain things. God, I pray, help us all to just let go, to trust you in every part of our life from how we raise kids, how we grow and take care of our parents, how we interact with the people around us, how we work at our places that we work at, how we interact with everyone, God, should be impacted by the goodness we have received. The evidence of our, the impact you've had on us, God, is our love for you and for others. Help us to show that today. Help us to experience your love if we haven't been able to yet. God, let it take place in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.